It is good to be with you all again this evening and be able to worship together. I was uh, given an announcement, uh, Roger, I apologize, didn't uh, make it to you in time to give you this, but there's actually an updated number for the amount of verses that our young people read from Hebrews. The updated and final number is now 22,339 verses. I don't know how many uh, chapters that that comes out to or anything like that. We'll let you run those numbers, but I do know that um, our young people certainly should be commended for that. Over 22,000 verses this summer. That's great. Now I'm going to do something that I, I don't think I've ever done here before, but just bear with me for a moment. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. By show of hands, how many of you have now or have at some time in your life owned just a New Testament, a New Testament copy of God's Word. All right. How many of you now are at some time in your life have owned a New Testament and at the back of the New Testament is the, the book of Deuteronomy? How many? Now, what about how many have had a New Testament and that copy of the New Testament comes with the book of Ezekiel or Jeremiah? Any? How about the book of Psalms? Uh-huh. Have you ever stopped to think about why it is that the editors and translators, the publishers of Bibles, why it is that they saw fit to produce New Testaments, not with Deuteronomy or Jeremiah or Lamentations or even Genesis, but rather New Testaments with the book of Psalms uh, tied together with them. I always think about something that a good friend of mine said. He said one time, if you're ever feeling as if you're separated from God and you need to be drawn closer to him, then what you need to do is you need to study and meditate on Psalms. The Psalms, the book of Psalms, what a great book. It is a compilation of these inspired Psalms or songs that have a great devotional value. They tell us so much about God. They tell us so much about our place before God. And they tell us so much about what God thinks and what God or how God feels about us. No wonder then they help us to draw closer to him. And when I think about the devotional value of the book of Psalms, there is one psalm that really stands out to me. It's the psalm, incidentally, that Aaron read on Wednesday night. It's Psalm 139. Open your Bibles to Psalm 139. We've studied this before, but it's been several years. And I thought it would be good to study this psalm together again this evening. Psalm 139 is the psalm that really comes to my mind when I think about what this book really is all about. Because it basically does two things. It first of all tells us about the greatness of our God... But then it has a devotional, a practical application to it because in the first verse and in the last section of the, of the psalm, verse 19 to 24, we go from talking about how great God is to how we stand or where we stand in the sight of this great God. The psalmist begins and says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And he ends in verses 19 to 23 by saying two things. Number one, I don't want to have anything to do with those people who will stand in opposition to our great God. 
And number two, I want our God to search me and try me and know me and cleanse me because I want to stand in perfect harmony and fellowship with him. Let's see how this psalm unfolds together. First of all, we have a discussion of God's omniscience in Psalm 139 verses 1 to 6. God's omniscience, it has to do with the fact that God knows all things. I want you to stop for a moment and ask yourself this question. Who knows you better than any other person in this world? Maybe a mom or a dad, maybe a best friend, perhaps your spouse. They know you better than any person in this world. In Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6, David, the psalmist, he's going to describe how God knows all and specifically how God knows him better than anyone in this world. Even God knows David even better than David does. Look what he says. He says, you have searched me and known me. And the word search is an interesting word. It'll actually be used in Job 28 and verse 3, and it is a word that has to do with digging in the earth and mining for precious metals like silver and gold. And so he's saying, you've dug deep down within me, and then he says, you've known me. And the word known has to do with an intimate kind of knowledge. In other words, God knows him intimately inside and out better than anyone else, even David. We think about this typically as it pertains to a husband and a wife and how a husband or a wife, how they, they know one another intimately, emotionally. They know one another's thoughts and better than any other human being in this world, a husband knows his wife and a wife knows her husband uh, more than anyone else. And now he's going to unpack it for us a little bit. He says, you've searched me and you've known me. You know me better than anyone. He says, you know my thoughts, verse 2. You know my ways, verse 3. And you even know my words, verse number 4. He says, you know my down-sitting and my uprising, standing up and sitting down. And you even understand my thoughts afar off. Amos 4 and verse 13 Amos talked about the fact that God knows the thoughts of man and the language of Psalm 139.2 has to do with something like this, that, that God knows our thoughts even before and as they are evolving in our own mind. He knows our thoughts before we do. That's the idea. But not only our thoughts. He says, you, you know my ways, my actions. You uh, compass my path. The idea of that word is sift. You sift and dig through it. You know my lying down and you are acquainted with all of my ways. There isn't anything that I can do that you're not going to know about. And you know my words. Verse number four, there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O O Lord, you know them all together. Just as he says in verse two, You know my thoughts even as they are evolving in my own mind. In verse 4, he says, You know my words even as they are forming or evolving on my tongue. You know my thoughts. You know my actions. You know the words that I speak. He says in verse 5, You have beset me behind and before you've laid your hand on me. That's the idea of placing a hedge round about him. And then he reflects on that knowledge in verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. The idea is 
The idea is that this knowledge is extraordinary and I cannot comprehend it. I cannot wrap my mind around it. God's omniscience. You know, really, when you stop and think about the omniscience of God, there is, uh, you could see it as a blessing and a curse. It is a blessing that God is omniscient and that he knows us better than we even know ourselves. He knows our thoughts and our words and our actions. He knows everything about us. That, that is a blessing because, let me ask you a question, have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever had a conflict bet between you and another person that has come about because some misunderstanding has happened and you've not been able to, to uh, correct it for whatever reason? Have you ever experienced a situation in which you were struggling to bring your thoughts together? You're trying to come to the Lord in prayer and you're trying to understand how to, how to deal with the problem and you just don't know how to communicate it to God. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like no one in the world can possibly understand what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and what it's like to be in my shoes? Well, God does and God can. God knows me inside and out, and that is a blessing to know that God knows me exactly for who I am, but it can also be a curse because God knows me for exactly who I am. And it may be that I'm try to say something or try to be a certain way in front of people who are around me, but when I'm all by myself at home or in my thoughts, I'm a person totally different than what I'm portraying in front of other people. God well, he knows that as well. So this omniscience of God, it can be a blessing, but it can, but it can also be a curse because God knows all. He knows me better than anyone or anything could possibly imagine. This leads to the second section, verses 7 through 12, where he describes now God's omnipresence. God not only knows everything, God is everywhere. That's the idea. Look at the question he asks. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, I don't believe that David is asking this from any... Uh, I don't believe he's asking this because of fear. He's not saying it from the standpoint of, well, listen, I'm, this knowing how much you know about me, it, it makes me nervous and I want to be able to run away. That's not what he's saying. He's looking at it again from the standpoint, I would suggest to you, of blessing. We have a God who knows all things. He knows me inside and out. That's a blessing. That's humbling. But we also have a God who is everywhere and there's nowhere that we can go. There's no place in this world where we can go and God is not there. He illustrates it. He says, if I go all the way to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there too. North and south, if you will. But I can't go. God's everywhere. What about east and west? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the wings of the morning has to do with the rays of the morning sun. And he says, listen, the rays of the morning sun, to my knowledge, they travel something like 186 miles per second. And if I were to be on the rays of the morning sun and travel at that speed, there's no way that I could outrun God. He says, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I plunge down to the deepest depths of the deepest sea that God has created, God is there too. By the way, does that remind you of somebody? How about Jonah? He says, even there, your, 
right hand, your hand is going to lead me and your right hand is going to hold me. He says, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me, even the night will be light about me. Yea, the darkness hides not from you, but the night shines as the day and the darkness and the light, they're both alike to you. There's nowhere we can run. There's nowhere we can hide. There's nowhere that God's eyes cannot see. There's no night so dark that he can't see uh, through it as if it is day. God is everywhere and he sees everything. Now again, just like God's omniscience, this can be viewed in a positive way or a negative way. It can be viewed in a negative way because it's very possible that, again, we might think I'm do, I'm. I'm doing things that I know that are wrong, but after all, I'm doing them in the privacy of my own home. Nobody can see. Well, God sees, but let's think about it from the positive. Have you ever, have you ever had a, uh, an occasion in which you were so broken, so heartbroken that you went into a room where nobody else could see and you cried your eyes out? Have you ever experienced a situation in which you felt completely alone, as if there was no one there, absolute and utter loneliness? No one is there. No one is beside you. God is. God is there. There is nothing we can do that he doesn't see. There isn't a thought that we can think that he doesn't know. There isn't a pain or a fear or an agony that we can experience that he doesn't know we're experiencing. And there's nowhere we can go where... He is not also there. Look at the next section. Verses 13 down through verse number 18. He's talked about God's omniscience. He knows everything. He's talked about his omnipotence. He is, or excuse me, his omnipresence. He is everywhere. But now he's going to talk about his omnipotence. That is his power. God is all powerful. And the way that the inspired psalmist uh, chooses to illustrate the power of God is, at least to my mind, perhaps the greatest illustration of the power of God that there is. He uses the formation of life in a mother's womb to describe the all-powerful nature of God. He says, "'You have possessed my reins, and you have covered me in my mother's womb.'" That, that word reigns, it's a word that has to do with the innermost personality. So what makes me, me, my, my soul, my spirit, that, that comes from God. You possess that. You have it in your hands. And he says, you covered me in my mother's womb. And the word covered, maybe not the best translation because the word has to do with being, with being knit together. So what he's saying is, listen, God... You knit me together. You wove me inside my mother's womb. I will, I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, marvelous of your works, and that my soul knows right well. How does David know? How can we know that God's works are marvelous? How can we say with David that my soul knows right well? Well, it's true. We can look out at the created order and we could know that, but using the illustration of Psalm 139, all we really have to do is look at ourselves. Look at our bodies. Look at how God has created life and look at the 
process of a new life coming into existence in this world, a new life being formed inside a mother's womb, and that baby being uh, that baby growing and developing. David says, when I look at that, I praise you because I know that that's your work. I know that that is your power. He builds on it more. Look at verse 15. He says, my substance was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. The word substance has to do with the, if you will, substantial part of man's being. It's literally talking about what makes up our bodies, our bones, and our blood vessels, and all of those things. He says, you saw all of that while I was being made, while I was being formed and fashioned and secret, and and, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. When he talks about the lowest parts of the earth, that is an allusion to the mother's womb. And when you look at this phrase, curiously wrought together, it's so interesting. In the Hebrew text, this exact terminology will be used eight times in the book of Exodus. And of those eight times that it's used in the book of Exodus, it refers to the very careful, very elaborate embroidery of the garments that the priest would wear and of the building and the embroidery of the items of the tabernacle. So look at, what, look at what David is saying in this passage. He's saying, look, every part, of my, every part of me, from the spiritual part of man, the emotional part of man, my soul, my spirit, what makes me me, even my body, my bones, and my skin, and my eyes, all of these things, God, when I was in my mother's womb, like a careful, exquisite artisan, you wove me together piece by piece and part by part. Your eyes, verse 16, they saw my substance. They saw me as a baby in my mother's womb, yet being unperfect. And in your book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are your thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Look at verse 16. In the middle of that verse, he says, In your book, all my members were written. In your book. We sing the song sometimes, God holds the germ within his hand. Do we not? There is a God. We talk about life. Secure from life is mortal, uh, is mortal mind. God holds the germ within his hand. Though men may search, they cannot find. For God alone doth understand. That's Psalm 139, verse 16. That's why the Holy Spirit inspires David to use this as an illustration of the power of God because as we understand it, as scientific law tells us, life only comes from life of the previous kind. You can't get life from something that's non-living. And that's why in laboratories all over the world, Scientists have tried, who, scientists who do not believe in God have tried time and time again to create life from non-life and they cannot do it. Psalm 139, 16 says, life and the formation of life, that's written in the book of God. He is the one. He is the one who has the power to create it. And now in verse number 17 and verse number 18, he concludes this section by just stepping back and being in awe. 
I think about Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4, when I consider the sun and the moon and the stars and the works of your hands, and then I think about the fact that you have thought about me. How precious are your thoughts towards me? That's what David is saying. When I think about your omniscience, when I think about the fact that you know uh, in, a, in an unlimited fashion, when I think about your omnipresence, the fact that you are everywhere, when I think about your omnipotence, this great power that you have that is seen so clearly even in the formation of life. And then I think, look back to verse 1 now, because he's transitioning back to that point. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. Who am I? Who am I that the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God would, have, would think about me as an individual? And that's the idea. He does think about me as an individual. He knows me and he cares about me. And that is a, a humbling thought, or at least it should be. Now look at the closing section of this psalm in verses 19 to 24. There are two things, basically, that David does now to conclude this. Again, he started in verse number 1, so you've got to read, uh, you've got to consider 19 to 24 in connection with verse 1. But there are two things here, and the first thing is that, that David is saying, listen, when I consider this great God that, that has created me and how wonderful he is, I don't want to have, I, I want nothing to do with anyone who would, who would oppose him in any way. In verse 19 through 22, he says, Surely you will slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men, for they speak against you wickedly, and your eyes take your name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate you, and am I not grieved with those that rise up against you? He says, I, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. This is a challenging passage, admittedly so, because, wait a minute, David, you're saying you hate those who... I thought we weren't supposed to hate people. Well, let's look at the word hate. It helps to define it. The word literally defined means to scorn or to de detest or to decrease in status. It really has to do with separation, and this is a judicial hatred, not an emotional hatred. What he's saying is, listen, I want the enemies of God to be humbled, and I want God to be exalted. And when he says, I hate them with a perfect hatred, the word perfect is the key. Again, it's judicial, it's not emotional, and the hatred that he's talking about is not an anger, I hate you and I never want to see you again kind of thing. It's rather, listen, because I have this great love for God and this great respect for him, those who stand opposed to him, I want nothing to do with them. I want to be separated from them. I want to see them defeated. That's not to say that he wouldn't desire their repentance if that's what they chose to do. But we're talking about folks in this passage, not who have a desire to repent, but rather who have a desire to continually fight against God. And he says, I want nothing to do with them. But then in verses 23 and 24, he says, here's what I want. I want this great God to search me. I want him to know me, and I want him to see if there's any fault within me and the reason is because I want to have perfect and absolute harmony and fellowship with this wonderful God that we've described. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, he says, and see if there be any way, excuse me, any wicked way in me and lead me in life everlasting. Now, we need to be impressed with this passage, but we also ought to be challenged by it. Because what David is saying in in these two verses is, God, I know that you're omniscient. I know you know everything. I know that you're omnipresent. I know that you're everywhere. I know that you're omnipotent. I know that you're all-powerful. And even, you could make an argument, the previous verses, verse 19 to 21, I know that you're all-righteous. And knowing that, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to x-ray my heart. I want you to do the most detailed MRI that's ever been done. And and I want you to look deep down within me and test me as a refiner would test fire, excuse me, refiner would test metal. And I want you to see if there's even one microscopic imperfection in my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Would we have the courage to pray that and ask God that, uh, make that same request to God tonight? That's sobering. But that's what David wants. That's what he wanted. And the reason is because he's not just describing the greatness and the grand character of God for the sake of describing it. He's describing it and reflecting upon it because he wants to praise God for who he is and because he wants to be in fellowship and harmony with God. What about you? What about me? Do we have the same desire? Do we recognize how great God is? And do we have a great desire to be in harmony and fellowship and walk in unison with him? Are we willing to make this request? Search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and let lead me in the way everlasting. Do you know how God performs that search? He performs that search through the power of his word that we hold in our hands. Do you remember how James described the word of God in James chapter 1? James describes God's word as a mirror. And the idea is that when we hold up the mirror that is God's word and we, we look in its reflection, it will always show us for who we really are. Perhaps that's why sometimes we fail to read and study God's word as we should. Because we know when we read it and we read it and study and reflect upon it carefully, it's going to reveal some things about us that might make us uncomfortable. We have to get ourselves to a point where on a regular basis, we're allowing God to search us and try us and show us for who we really are through the pages of his word that he's given to us. We have to get ourselves to a point where when we reflect upon how great our God is, we also reflect upon how great our desire is to to be with him. And if our desire to be with him is as great as it should be, then we're not going to have any problem asking him to search us. We're not going to have any problem asking him to show us for who we really are so that we can make the changes that need to be made, so that we can be like him. He is. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Psalm 139 is a challenging psalm indeed, but it is an encouraging psalm. It is one that is well worth our time and our reflection. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation this evening, and maybe there's someone here that has need to respond, perhaps to become a Christian. 
Maybe you are a Christian, and as you think about your life, you think about the psalmist and how he prayed that God would search him and try him. You realize, you know what? I can't confidently make that same assertion tonight because if I did, I'm ashamed of what God would find. Can we help you? Can we pray with you, for you? Can we encourage you in some way? The Lord's invitation is extended. If you have need, please come forward and let it be known while we stand and sing together.